Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Ali Hamed, co-founder and partner of CoVenture. CoVenture offers entrepreneurs multiple ways to finance their business. Ali is one of the more unique guests we've had on the show simply because CoVenture's model is quite different as they can underwrite both equity and debt into technology startups. When Ali and I first got talking, he mentioned that he was consumer curious as opposed to being a straight consumer investor. So we're certainly gonna unpack that in this episode. And we also discuss why Ali is so bullish on Amazon rollups that have been happening and which social media companies are doing a great job appealing to creators and which aren't, as well as just a lot, lot more. This is a really fun conversation. Without further ado, here's Ali. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I really, uh, I'm excited to get going. Yeah, this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be fun. Really appreciate you coming on the show. I wanted to first start out. I ask every guest this, but I always just, just just think it's interesting to start out how you got started and what was your initial attraction to finance and why did you decide to focus your career on the private markets? Sure. So you know, my entry into what we do now is a little bit odd. When I was an undergrad. You know, I, I did a startup. We raised a little bit of money. It, it didn't work out, but I kind of caught the startup bug. And from picturing a bunch of people, I thought, gosh, being a venture capitalist would be so much cooler than starting a company. You know, how much better would it be to give people money instead of ask for it a bunch? It turns out to start a VC fund, you got to ask for money a lot. But I didn't really put the pieces together. I, basically, I wanted to be a VC for all the wrong reasons. But I was doing some consulting work at the time, sort of one-off projects. I'd, I'd saved up just enough money where I could make a few angel investments um, to learn and kind of grow as an investor. And a bunch of those investments ended up being in the fintech space and, and more specifically in the alternative lending space. And all these companies needed more than just equity, they also needed debt financing. And so we thought, gosh, you know, like that might be an opportunity. And so we worked with a couple of companies and they needed debt capital. And so since we didn't have a track record at the time, we couldn't go raise a credit fund. Instead, what we had to do is raise SPVs deal by deal. And SPV is basically a legal entity you set up to, for the purpose of making one investment. So we went out to all these people that I kind of met through consulting and my partner, Savneet, who was introducing me to a bunch of his friends. We'd raise a bunch of money around a specific deal. We would do the deal and we'd do another. And all of our venture capital friends and tech friends said, oh my gosh, you, know, you guys can do debt. And so we started getting this crazy amount of deal flow. And after a few years of doing these deals as one-off SPVs, we ended up putting together you know, more of a traditional firm with dedicated capital and everything like that. And you know, today, the firm has really sort of developed into a venture business. It's a lot more traditional than what we used to do, um, where we invest you know, quarter million to $5 million of equity uh, into any specific deal, seed or Series A. And in credit, we provide you know, 25 to $100 million of capital deal by deal out of a dedicated pool. And for us, the path to get here was a, a pretty scrappy one. And it wasn't until 2019 or 2018, maybe, where we became more institutional. But I kind of joked that you know, if somebody were to write out my bio or my resume, it would be pretty short. You know, I had somebody asked me to put together a resume for a really random reason, maybe two years ago. I remember I had a really hard time making it be a full page because <laughs> I hadn't really had enough work experience. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of how we got into the business. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, 
it doesn't seem like there's a ton of debt financing when it comes to like early stage venture, of course, just because the risk profile I'd imagine is just astronomical. It seems like that was pretty creative from you. What was the reaction from when you started doing debt deals from from founders, from other folks in the business? I mean, how were you actually able to build a whole business around debt? There's a couple of points there. One is, I think there's a lot of people in the world who know a lot about venture capital. And there's a lot of people in the world who know a lot about credit, but very few people know a lot about both. You know, if you think about a lot of the great companies that were founded, it's not because some entrepreneur knew more about entrepreneurship. It was because somebody knew about one thing and applied it to a different discipline. And a lot of these businesses that have gotten built are really from cross-disciplinary expertise. And we accidentally stumbled into that. You know, we ended up developing an expertise around credit and an expertise around venture capital and startups. And there were very few people who knew about both. To give you an idea of the dissonance between credit markets and equity markets when it comes to technology, in equity markets, if you're tech-enabled, you'll trade at a premium. You're more valuable because of your technology. In credit markets, if you're tech-enabled, life's harder for you. People don't want to lend to you because you're tech-enabled. And so if you think about how far apart those two worlds are, I think that's a really big deal and maybe a misunderstood one. And also, a big thing changed in technology. It used to be that when you were starting a technology company, you had all this crazy technology risk. You're building something new, new software, cloud computing, whatever it was. And that stuff isn't really that risky anymore for most of the companies we work with. And then it used to be that you were taking a lot of risk on business model. A whole new, it's like SaaS was a new business model. Marketplace was a new business model. Today, there's basically every company is either a SaaS business, a direct-to-consumer business, or a marketplace. And, and maybe there's like three or four other business models. So the only risk you're really taking in many cases is sort of product market fit and TAM. And so the risk profile of businesses has changed, but the way they get financed hasn't. And historically, the only debt financing available in the venture world was, was venture debt. You know, and venture debt is an, a type of debt where you basically look at what VC funded the deal. You look at the loan to value you'd be able to apply. You put liquidity covenants, material adverse covenants, or whatever. But it's really not like underwriting a cash flow or a risk profile. It's really underwriting the equity sponsor in many ways. And that was the only type of debt financing available. And then finally, you know, the type of debt that we were providing wasn't just lending money to a startup and hoping they do a good job with the money and letting them use the money for anything. The debt we were providing was what people call asset-based lending or asset-backed lending, where what we would do is we give money to a company And they could use that money to go originate types of assets or finance different types of assets or buy different types of assets, which we'll get into together in a minute. And so we thought, gosh, you know, we don't want to just be some other random seed or series A fund. We happen to think we're very good at it. We've we've had a lot of success and opportunity from doing it, but it doesn't really make us that much different to just be another VC fund. And certainly the same on the credit side, because credit yields are even tighter than venture valuations are high. But we really love being kind of in the nexus of both. It makes sense, as you say, just taking a different lens in terms of how to approach debt and actually underwriting the asset, which is very different to uh, to venture debt. I know that obviously with your fund, you obviously do a multiple, you invest in a, multiple types of businesses. What makes consumer to you? What makes you curious about consumer? Well, I think consumer businesses have gone through a major change, especially in the last handful of years, and especially in e-commerce. You know, And for us, there were a few opportunities that really... Um, kind of got us really excited. The first was we were, you know, early investors in business called ClearCo. And they had this point of view of, wow, you know, if you're a good e-commerce business, you can come with a point of view that depending on how you spend the money or what you spend the money on, you actually might be able to finance these businesses without just venture capital. There's a lot of people building great businesses that want to own more and more of those businesses. But because the business model of e-commerce companies has matured, you can actually give them more than just venture capital dollars. And how amazing would it be if ClearCo could build this uh, understanding of you know, information they could give to e-commerce businesses that would make the e-commerce businesses better. They could understand how the capital is being used. And you could create this really amazing credit product where for us, in many ways, we kind of got into consumer by learning from Andrew and Michelle and, and, and the ClearCo team. And that was really exciting. 
And then what we also started to see was really the shift of where like, you know, the middle class and Main Street was going. You know, and there's been this meme recently that, um, you know, the, the Main Street's dead because of COVID and retail's dying. And, and, you know, and there's a lot of things that are true, by the way. You know, socioeconomic um, disparity is probably a problem. But this idea that like the, the, the like mainstream went away or Main Street went away is like probably wrong. Main Street just lives on Amazon now. And Main Street lives on Shopify now and on Instagram now and on YouTube now. And we think a lot about what we call platform economies. You know, I think that the comment around creator economies, everyone loves creator economies. And, and we would actually like, like to broaden that. We actually think not all businesses that live within platforms happen to be that creative. But, but they certainly live within platforms. And today, Main Street isn't called Main Street. It's called you know, some category on Amazon. And so we thought, oh my God, you know, it turns out the way people shop, the way they buy lives within these ecosystems. And how can we go finance those? Because those businesses specifically actually have a much different risk profile than some high-flying venture capital business that's using the money to do something totally unpredictable. And when you think about how attractive those businesses are from an investability perspective, I mean, what would you rather own? Would you rather own some business on, you know, on a street that pays their rent on a fixed cost basis, has cardboard boxes everywhere and employees and a parking lot, or, you know, it's actually, it's not even a parking lot, it's a parking lot with like four spaces that have the sign of that store where your customers can sit in it. Or would you rather fund an internet business that actually is a similar business model of many other people, but just happens to sell something a little bit different um, with variable costs, high margins. And, and we thought, oh my God, maybe... Maybe it's less about the fact that we wanted to have a point of view on the consumer specifically or their taste, but we've just gone through this total renaissance of how these businesses are built, the risk profile they have, and the fact that a lot of great consumer businesses that used to live offline now live online, and here's an opportunity for us to finance those. Those are all really great points. I mean, it also reminds me a little bit of my conversation with Robin Lee at GGV, who was saying about how she thinks about consumer is taking SMBs and bringing them online. And I think that we get so wrapped up in like the creator economy sometimes, but like, but it's also like, there's also massive opportunities of just taking your maybe small business, like brick and mortar stores and actually bring them online as well, which I think is what you're describing. And I totally understand too about like the ClearCo opportunity. I mean, what I think about ClearCo as well is, and with e-commerce businesses that maybe actually also may not be right for venture capital, right? That actually might be more lifestyle businesses. And it seems like ClearCo, how I understand it, has kind of filled a little bit of a hole there since I know now that like raising for a designated brand, it's a lot tougher now than it was in the late 2000s, early 2010s because you don't have those like growth arbitrage opportunities with like Facebook ads and and Google. And so I guess my question for you is when for e-commerce brands, does it make sense to maybe go with like a credit option, maybe similar to like ClearCo versus like raising from traditional venture capital funds? And how do you look at, I know that you more invest on the fund side, which we'll certainly get into, but like, how do you think about this? You know, you think about why would you ever take debt and why would you ever take equity? You know, and so debt's cheaper than than equity. When you borrow money, you owe a certain amount back and you don't own, owe like part of your company. You know, and arguably if things go well, part of your company should be worth a lot of money. So arguably everyone should only want to raise debt, but that's not really true. Why? Well, because when you borrow money, it comes with a term. You know, the wonderful thing about equity is there's no term on it. You never owe the money back at a given date. And if you fail to give the money back on that date, you go to business. In debt, that could be true. Um, and by the way, we should separate out ClearCo because you know ClearCo isn't making loans to these companies. It's a it's an advanced product. Um, and and the further I go into that, their management team to talk about. But the point is, you know, you should use debt when you have a point of view on is the use of proceeds going to create a certain amount of value in exchange. So a student loan. You should take a student loan if you believe that going to college will help help you get a job that allows you to one day pay the student loan back. 
unfortunately, people, you know, from time to time take student loans because they were told that college is a really great time and they should go and drink and make a lot of friends. And if they pay the money back, that would, that's something that they should worry about when they're in their 30s and they have kids and, and they've loaded themselves up with a lot of debt. You know, maybe that's a, a whole tangent. But equity should really be used when you're building something like technology where you don't know if it's going to be valuable or not. You think it is, you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't, but you don't have the certainty where you're willing to contractually commit to getting the money back to somebody in year three or in year two or in year four. And so for e-commerce businesses generally, when should they take equity and when should they take debt? Well, they should take debt when they know that the use of proceeds of that debt has a high certainty of creating cash flow such that they can go pay that bet, a debt back at a, a reasonable rate. So long as the cost of that debt continues to be cheaper than the equity and cheaper by an amount that makes up for that risk you're applying to your business by having that obligation. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that, you know, getting into e-commerce, I know that you're very, very bullish about investing in Amazon-based businesses um, as opposed to Shopify businesses. Um, Why? Both can be great businesses. And a lot of people have made a ton of money on Shopify. Shopify is a great company. The thing that attracts us so much to the Amazon third-party seller space to begin with is just the size of the market, right? There's about, call it $200 billion of GMV done by third-party sellers. These businesses operate at reasonably high margins, call it 20%. So there's about $40 billion of addressable EBITDA to finance. And that number's growing at a crazy rate, you know, call it 40% or so. So even in the next couple of years, we think it's going to $80 billion. And these businesses aren't going to trade like software companies. I don't know what they're going to trade out if you, if you thought about where public equities are and, and where they should be. Let's just use eight times because I don't think anyone's going to yell at me for using eight times. There's probably like $640 billion of value that's going to be created there. So wow, that's actually a really big deal. On top of that, Amazon's not going to like probably want there to be one or two winners. And by the way, I don't really know what I'm, we haven't talked to them and, and they, they're going to have a point of view and a point of view I'm sure will evolve and mature over time. But the point is for it to continue to be a marketplace, there's probably going to be hundreds of winners. You know, you could conceivably have, you know, 300, 400, 500 unicorns built in the Amazon third-party seller ecosystem. That is psycho. So then why do we love these businesses and, and why do we think Amazon seller businesses are so structurally amazing? Well, it's because of three superpowers. The first superpower is they have comment and review modes. You know, if you're ranked highly on Amazon, you'll end up selling more stuff, which will make you have more reviews and more comments, which will help you sell more stuff, which will give you more reviews and comments and so on. So not only is it a moat, but it's a compounding moat. I was listening uh, to a podcast actually with Carlos from Thrasio, and he, and he had this great point, which he said, um, if you had a young consumer, I, I don't remember what product he was talking about, but I'll, I'll just take soap. You know, let's imagine you were searching for soap on Amazon, and you saw that one product that you'd never heard of before, had 4.8 stars, 60,000 reviews, and was ranked number one. And Dove, which we've all heard of, had 4.3 stars or 4.1 stars and like 4,000 reviews. I bet you the average young consumer will buy the rank number one product over Dove because the comments and reviews are more powerful than a brand. The second thing, the second wonderful superpower that these businesses have is they have variable cost P&Ls. So if you look at the P&L of one of these Amazon third-party sellers, they might do $100 of revenue. And they're probably spending like $30 on COGS, which are variable because it's COGS, and 40 bucks on Amazon FBA services. And those are variable because it's for services, for selling stuff. You probably have like $10 of overhead. And so to see a business that's basically a variable cost P&L business is really tremendous. It'll let you toggle up and down when times are good and when times are bad, when it's the holiday season, when you need to stock up on inventory, whatever it might be. It's always better to finance a variable cost business than a fixed cost business. The third wonderful superpower these businesses have is they don't have to spend as much money on marketing. So if you take a small business, you want to be on a, on a busy street. You want the foot traffic. And that foot traffic walks by your store every once in a while. Somebody comes in, you have like a sign. If, if, you know, maybe it's a neon sign. But, but the point is you have to spend a bunch of money on real estate. In e-commerce, like a Shopify business, you got to get people to come to your website. 
and you got to spend wake up every day, spend money on Facebook ads or Google ads or Pinterest ads or whatever to get people to come to your site. On Amazon, if you're ranked highly in a category, you don't have to spend nearly as much money because people are just come to your category and you're going to be on the first page you're going to sell stuff. So your ROAS is a lot lower. And so you end up having a much higher margin business by spending less of your revenues on ad spend. Um, and we think that that's a really powerful thing. Those three superpowers that make these businesses so special, beyond the fact that they're just naturally growing, beyond the fact that there's going to be many of them, beyond the fact that there's a huge market, beyond the fact that they're high margin, they have these structural components to them. None of those three things exist on Shopify yet. That may change. And by the way, the trade-off you're making is you do lose brand affinity. You know, it is harder to build a brand on Amazon. It is easier to build a brand on Shopify. You own the customer more on Shopify. People will value brand equity in a way on Shopify that they won't value that on Amazon. But we're willing to take the bet on those three superpowers over, you know, maybe some of those other components that Shopify has as an advantage. No, those are great points. I guess the first off, too, as well, if you're on Shopify, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you then have to obviously do ads on Facebook and Google. And those are, of course, now it's very, very saturated. You don't have those arbitrage opportunities like you used to. So it's going to be extremely expensive. How do you view advertising on Amazon? I'd imagine it's a lot more wide open and a lot more cheap to actually advertise like an Amazon you're listing on there. Is that correct, you think? It's very category specific. One of the things that you know you'll often hear us joke about internally is like some of the cat- some of the goofy categories that we would avoid on Amazon because they're overly competitive. So like pickleball would be a category that we'd be nervous about because pickleball is like a fast-growing sport. We think that big brands are going to come into it. It's actually a market worth winning. And so what you're going to have is a lot of really big brands come into the space and try to win a category like that. And they're going to spend a bunch of money on PPC strategies um, because there's something to, to win. And then there's more niche strategies, you know, smaller categories that maybe do 10, 30, 50 million dollars of total GMV on Amazon, like Nike and Adidas will just never care about, or anybody with a really sophisticated paid acquisition strategy will ever care about. And then, you know, your advertising strategy on Amazon really depends on, you know, where are you ranked, how competitive are the other people in the space? You know, there's a lot of stuff in there where it's really hard to say, gosh, here is the Amazon advertising playbook. You know, I think it really depends on the product, the category, where you rank in that category. And then also, like, I think a lot of paid acquisition depends on the story you can tell with your, you know, your creative ads. Like, there's a lot of products that, you know, they're not differentiated enough to really do paid acquisition. There's not a story behind them. There's some where you can come with all kind of goofy, funny things. I think also people really underestimate how much of the market, of the, uh, the paid acquisition market, Amazon has. I mean, Amazon advertising is a massive, massive business. And I think it's one of the stories that'll start to get told more and more over time. Um, but I, don't, I think it's hard to distill it to just... Uh, Advertising on Amazon is good and easier versus Amazon and shop, uh, advertising on Shopify is really hard. It's probably easier on Amazon because you're already in a certain category and you know either there's more intent, there's different types of intent. Maybe Amazon advertising is a little bit less competitive than things that are more tried and true, but it's um, hard to distill it into like a, a pithy silver bullet comment, well packaged for a podcast. That, that's very, very fair. I mean, everything is kind of category dependent, even on Facebook ads, right? You might be able to get a cheap Facebook ads in a particular category, or rather probably actually makes more sense, Google SEO. For Amazon, just thinking about the risks of Amazon, I remember like a couple, like two or three years ago, there was a report in Germany about a lot of sellers really barking back and, and maybe wanted the government to step in with some regulation about Amazon stealing data, using data for their own advantage, the seller data. Is this something that worries you as you underwrite risk and as you underwrite and as you're thinking about, I know that you invest more on actual funds that are doing this rather than, than specific brands, but is that at all um, a concern for you? 
I think Amazon's been actually a much better partner than they get credit for. And you know, when we think about platforms generally, you know, so I'll, I'll back up. We often think about platform economies, as I mentioned. We try to figure out which platform economies are easier and harder to invest in. And we run these platforms through a handful of characteristics that we think of make them more investable or less investable. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, does the platform drive traffic to you? Amazon, the answer is yes. Shopify, the answer is no. YouTube, the answer is kind of yes. Instagram, it's in the middle. TikTok, it's hard. You know, the second one is, do they monetize on your behalf? You know, anything with programmatic ad spend, like Spotify, yes, absolutely. Um, they, they basically do all the business stuff for you. Amazon, not quite, but it meets you in the middle. Shopify, no. Instagram, no. Does the platform have compounding moats? You know, on Amazon, absolutely. On Instagram, even, the more followers you have, the easier it is to get more followers. On Snapchat, the same. You know, So when we think about where Amazon sits on these handful of characteristics, we think of Amazon as one of the most investable places on the internet. Are they perfect? No, nothing's perfect. Um, but on top of that, it's been trending in the right direction. You know, Amazon used to be to the point of view that they're going to just send, sell a bunch of stuff to us. And I think from a combination of they've realized how strong the third-party seller ecosystem is, the fact that they realized it's probably a better business for them to be in, because you know, it, it turns out like free markets actually sort of work. And if you create a free market for people to sell stuff on it, you know, that, that'll be a good thing and, and people will sell more. Um, you don't take product risk, inventory risk, whatever. Um, I think Amazon's become more aligned over time. Now, will there be things that they do where governments have to step in? I don't know. I'm not in the four corners of the Amazon walls. The business that we've seen, it's been a really good experience. And I think that a lot of a lot of the content about Amazon being sharky or hard to work with, I think is overplayed. We don't really agree. Which platforms do you feel are serving creators best? And which platforms do you think have work to do? You know, I think the big theme that we've been spending a lot of our time on is first focusing on social media companies that have gotten the memo that social media probably shouldn't be social. You know, and what I mean by that is they're just media companies. And it turns out user-generated content, like it's not that good. You know, and if you think about, like, if anyone listening to this was to think about their Instagram feed, for example, like, I bet you that your feed is becoming more and more meme accounts and, like, funny kind of creators or influencers, whatever, and less and less about your friends. And, and like, for myself, like, there's certain friends of mine that, like, they post something every once in a while that's okay. But for the most part, like, my friends are pretty crappy posting user-generated content. And, like, I think the election really taught us that, like, user-generated content just sucks. Now, the first company that really figured that out was YouTube. You know, if you think about YouTube content, almost none of that is amateur. Like, you're not really watching your friends post stuff on YouTube. It's just a media company now. And if you think about what YouTube's done, they've gotten so good at monetizing the content for these creators. It's reasonably predictable. You have a following. You have a subscriber base. There's a lot of components there that are really great that what it lets you do is it lets you make money. And when you make money, that doesn't mean that you just make money and put it in your, your pocket. It makes you produce better content. And so then the content's better. So more people come to your site and more people come to YouTube and then YouTube gets better and they can make you more money and so on. You know, and there's a lot of platforms that haven't done a great job at creating both um, uh, consistency for the creators, you know, whether it's because like on TikTok, no one really knows how viral any one post is going to go. You know, there's sort of, and in many ways, that's what makes TikTok great. But it's really hard for a creator to have consistency of, I'm going to post this, I'm going to make a certain amount on this. Um, you know, for Instagram, they haven't rolled out programmatic ads yet for creators. And so for a lot of these platforms where there's very limited amounts of income that you can earn for anybody but the top, top, top people, you don't have the ability to reinvest in your content. So your content stays low production. And that's why on Instagram, we just have memes. You know, it turns out you won't be able to go beyond memes or go beyond low budget production until you can make money as a creator. So I think what people are looking for is consistency, predictability, and an ability to actually earn revenue such that they can reinvest in their own content. 
What are you looking for when you're thinking about the next generation of social media and what that kind of looks like of, of new platforms? I think the next generation of media is going to end up being a lot more specific to different you know, groups of audiences. Like, I, you know, we're invested in a company called Wave. Wave has done this amazing job of building a collection of brands that, that reach niche sports fandoms. And it could be women's weightlifting. It could be a specific sports team. It could be any sort of iteration of a sport that, you know, a group of people really, really care about, but it's not everybody. And I remember growing up, I used to watch SportsCenter. And if I got really lucky, watching SportsCenter, my favorite team would have a really big game the night before and I get four minutes on it. You know, that's probably not the future. And this idea of like agenda setting and telling everyone what's important, I think is, is probably going to change. And also people consume content differently. They consume it in shorter form. You know, the idea of waiting 40 minutes for your four-minute highlight of the, the most important game last night probably doesn't make sense for you and I, and it probably makes less sense for people younger than us. And so, you know, I think it's going to be fairly niche. I do think it's going to be, it's going to move to be more personality driven over time. Like, I think these memes will end up going, giving way to personalities. I think it's one of the things Barstool has gotten so right, um, is that you people really are connecting with an individual. I think it's going to be short form. Um, and I think the distribution pipes are going to be like really interesting and weird. So like, you know, how do you create a bunch of channels that are all tangentially similar to each other, where you can take an audience from one and give them that optionality to go to another and so on? And, and how do you kind of cross sell audiences? Um, but I bet you it's gonna. These companies are gonna look like you know if, if cable and AT and T used to be the way that would pipe content to you, like Facebook and Snapchat are the new AT and T in a way, where they're sort of the ones that actually own the pipes. You know, and if you think about where value was created, you know, first it was the people who laid down the cable, and then it was the networks, and then it was so you know, then there was the, the studios, and then it was the talent. I think we're actually going through a very similar sort of transition here, where first it was Facebook and Snapchat, then it's going to be the channels and the networks that are built within Facebook and Snapchat. And then it's going to be the actual creators who will make money last, just like celebrities make money today. And then, and then the question is, will there even be celebrities in the future? I don't know. Like, there'll probably be many celebrities, middle tail celebrities. I'm sure there's going to be somebody who does something crazy enough where everyone's going to know about them. But like, I don't think we're going to think about celebrities in the future the same way we think about them today. Yeah, so you think that almost you're going to have these like micro uh, influencers or almost like head of niche kind of personalities. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you think about also, I mean, this might be moving away from tech and we're talking about just like life. We went through this like technology innovation where everybody has more time because everything's cheaper, everything's faster. And like, there's this whole meme of, oh my God, like technology is taking away all the jobs. What are we all going to do? And then if you talk to anyone who invests in technology, they're going to say, well, this has happened a bunch of times. So who cares? You know, what's going to happen is not that everyone's going to lose their job. It's just going to create new jobs. And in a weird way, this is kind of like the Renaissance, you know, like the Renaissance, we went through a technology innovation. So people had time to be painters. And other people got wealthy enough where they could buy the, you know, the, the artwork. Today, you know, you have a new middle class that doesn't just like make widgets all day. You have a middle class that's creating art. It just turned out the art isn't watercoloring. It's, um, you know, it's creating something on YouTube or creating something on Instagram. And the people who don't have to work as hard anymore because they make a lot of money doing information services or, or writing code, they can watch it. So, so maybe we're just like sort of in this more creative time. Well, I don't know. There'll, there'll always be the, the most famous folk and the, the top of the top. I'm really excited about, you know, being an artist is, is now a job and, and it's kind of cool and, and I'm sure it'll get better and mature. We're in the earliest days of how good this content's going to get. No, that's a very, very point. And I think it's going back to also like talking about maybe like a middle class as well for these artists and not just it be, you know, hitting it big on YouTube or or what have you, which is kind of like where it is maybe right now, or I guess we're starting to see maybe a middle class, but uh, yeah, we're certainly in the early innings of it. 
I mean, it, it, the only way that you can make money as an artist today is be a tattoo artist, right? Like, if you really think about what is the only type of art form that you can get paid hundreds of dollars an hour for, like, on a normal basis, it's tattooing. I hope that it actually ends up being more digital art and media art and, and maybe not just digital art of, like, NFTs, whatever people have been talking about, but, like, actual, like, you know, these, these short-form videos or whatever it could be. Do you ever, like, I guess going back as well, maybe to the Barstool example about maybe personality-driven brands or personality-driven media companies. Since obviously you're an investor, and if you think about investing in like a media company that is personality-driven, is that also risky as well, since you're obviously tying, tying the brand to the person? Of course. And I think, you know, the, the people who have done it the best are the people who have struck, struck a balance between personalities that live within a brand, but the brand still being the overarching thing that everyone turns to. You know, like ESPN has a bunch of anchors and people know certain anchors and they're fun and they're famous. And, you know, we, we grew up listening to certain people kind of as cool as the other side of the pillow or whatever term you want to, you know, line you want to use. But at the end of the day, it's still ESPN. And there's not a lot of shows, by the way, that rely on just one individual. And so I think a lot of it, these networks did a really good job trying to figure out how to build personal brands while also making sure their whole business wasn't existential on that brand. I think we're going to start to see that same level of maturity happen within these media companies like built within social. It's not that different. Maybe it's going to be more niche Maybe it's going to be more short form. Maybe it's going to be produced differently. But I think a lot of those, you know, I, I think it's really tempting for people in tech and young people to say, oh my God, cable people are so, you know, old school and dumb and everything they do is like dumb. You know, it turns out they actually figured out a lot of shit. And one of those is that people matter. And the other is that you should make sure people matter, but not so much so that you're relying on one person where you have like that much risk. That's a very, very fair point. It's not something too that you that maybe you think about. Well, why are there already always so many changes in talent? Of course, obviously people get the day off, but also as well, it's also kind of deleveraging talent risk. I, I do think though that the way these media companies deal with talent, it'll continue to mature. One of the challenges people had was, you know, on Spotify and, and music streaming generally, it was really hard to get artists to go exclusive in like Tidal and Amazon Music and iTunes and everyone want like that would have been a dream, right? Because you people would have downloaded whatever service just to get that one artist. So why was it so hard? Well, you know, probably it was so hard because artists don't make most of their money from streaming. They make most of their money from touring. And why would they ever limit their audience size if that audience size is exactly what they needed to go tour? And so very few people figure out how to get artists to go exclusive. So everyone thought, gosh, that must be really hard. Creators are probably the same, influencers, artists, whatever. They're all the same. And I think that was like a false positive or maybe a false negative. Because now, like if you think of podcasters, you know, podcasters can go exclusive on Spotify. Spotify is buying podcasters. Why? Because podcasters actually care about how much they make on their recordings because they're not going on tour. I mean, I'm sure they could. I'm sure you could kind of go around to different cities and figure out where your listeners are and maybe do a small fireside chat and like charge a ticket. But you're not, most podcasters are not going to sell at Wembley, you know? And so... I think the, the important piece there is figure out who actually makes their money from the content that gets streamed and then lean into that and go exclusive. I mean, you're seeing that with the TikTok fund and you know, you're seeing that with these platforms try to make more money for their creators. You know, one of the lines that you'll often hear internally at our firm is, if you knew what happened in the streaming wars was about to happen in the social wars, how would you invest in that? And you know, you'll notice that like, there was this bidding up of content need from Netflix and Amazon and everyone else. I bet you something similar to that happens between a war between Snapchat and Facebook and YouTube and everyone trying to get creators to be exclusive with them. I don't clearly don't know what I'm talking about totally, but it's it's hard to imagine that won't eventually happen. So I guess posing the question during the social war wars as an investor, what do you think about then that's investable? The, the thing that I think about is most investable is that these are not going to be winner take all type markets and using just a purely venture capital approach prop to like, hope you pick the one creator who got bought for the most money. Like, I don't think that's the right way to do it. 
you know, it might be something where you just approach them as small businesses that actually have terminal value and an outcome associated with them. Or there's going to be some media companies. Like there will be a network that of channels that, you know, ends up getting built. I don't know if it'll look like ESPN. I don't know if it'll look like, you know, Cartoon Network. I don't know who it'll look like. But all of those things will end up getting built on these different social channels. And I think that's probably the venture scale opportunity. And then maybe from our debt side, you know, these are businesses that just have stable cash flows and I want to finance them somehow, you know, and, and I'd rather finance those businesses that are growing than provided a loan, you know, to some normal brick and mortar small business that's probably shrinking. You know, you hear a lot about how in venture capital, they don't invest in media companies. They don't want to invest in media companies. Do you think at all that's changing? Not yet. I mean, only in spots. But the problem is like, it's never all bad or all good. Why do venture capitalists like investing in SaaS companies or software companies? Well, it's, it's a bunch of reasons. One is the revenue is predictable and predictable revenue gets valued more highly. The other is it's high margin. You know, high margin revenue is good because it creates cash flows. The other reason is barrier entry, the switching costs. If you go down the line, it, the other reasons are they're capital efficient, they're equity efficient. You put in a little bit of money and you get a lot of money back. If you think about the, all the different reasons that these companies get valued highly, it's not because they're like, they're, they're SaaS or they're tech. You like double click on it and figure out those components. So, okay, so in media, are there switching costs? Maybe if there's a personal brand, you know, but now you have the creator, like the influencer risk or the personality risk. So maybe there's, if there's a collection of brands, you know, you can create switching costs or stickiness or various entry. Will it be the same as replacing your CRM? No. But will there be something there? Yeah, maybe. And, and so it's not all bad, but it's not all good. Um, are they capital efficient? It's sort of, you know, it turns out that, um, that producing content could be expensive. And so you're, you're never going to have software level margins. The margins are smaller. The amount of capital it takes is, is higher. The barriers to entry are a little bit lower. Do you own your customer in the same way? Are you really selling people something that's super differentiated? You know, if I have a SaaS company, I'm selling a software that you might never, not able to get any kind of software like this at all. If I'm a media company, what am I selling to an advertiser? I'm selling, you know, I'm a 29-year-old who lives in Brooklyn. I'm selling a 29-year-old's eyeballs. You know, is ESPN the only one who has 29-year-old eyeballs? No. CNN maybe has that or Fox or whomever. But maybe I still watch cartoons. Who knows? But, but maybe the reason they're not as valuable is that the product itself to the customer isn't that differentiated. You know, you're still selling an eyeball of the same person who's on a few other media companies. So I think you can get to a point where the value becomes so attractive that despite these things that media doesn't have that software does, you can just invest at the right valuation. But I think it's a function of price, not a function of should you invest or should you not invest. How do you think about media today? And are we starting to see that shake out? So it's anything, right? If somebody came up to you on the street and said, hey, I have this really wonderful thing for you. It's free. Do you want it? You'd be like, all right, there's something going on here. Like, this is not free. Uh, what's the catch? The catch in media, if someone gives you something for free, is that it's not for you. All they're doing is they're writing something, hoping that you'll look at it so they can sell your eyeballs to somebody. So you're not the customer. And they don't really care about your happiness. They care about the happiness of an advertiser, which is how they make money. Now, it turns out that your happiness is sort of aligned with the happiness of an advertiser because if they piss you off enough, you might stop coming back. Like you're not who they're catering towards. And if it's paid, allegedly, there's alignment, right? If it's paid, then great. You know, I'm paying for something. This is really meant for me. The accuracy might be there. The, you know, the quality is probably higher. I think the thing I've changed, I, you know, I warned you I'd probably change my mind because um, it was 2015. I think the thing that I was surprised by is it turns out that if catering to a paying customer doesn't mean giving them good information, it means giving them the information they want to hear. You know, one of the things that I've actually found, the things that I struggle the hardest to learn are the things where there's a part of the fact that, like I disagree with or I assumed was incorrect. And so I really have a hard time reading the sentence. So if I'm reading like a PDF or a research paper or whatever, and I'm trying to learn about a new technology, 
or I'm trying to learn about a new concept. I've always found that I have a really easy time understanding things that already kind of make sense to me because they align with everything I already know. I know that you know we know people in common, the people that we know in common are smart people, and they told me that I should talk to you and I liked you. You know, and that made a lot of sense to me because all the signal around it was helpful. Now let's imagine you know, all the people that made the introduction or, or connected us, I didn't like, they weren't smart. And then I liked you. It would take me like longer to get to the point where I was like understanding why this relationship made sense. The same is true when you're reading an article. So what these paid media websites have realized is they're not there to tell you the truth. They're tell you, there to tell you what you want to hear because they're now overly catering to you. And so I actually used to think that paid content was going to differentiate the has versus the have nots and you can invest in good content. The writers will get paid better, whatever. I think that's sort of true, but it's certainly become imperfect. And you're seeing that with the polarization of any paid media site. The ones that were more liberal that went paid are more liberal now. Ones that were more conservative are becoming increasingly conservative. And they're just kind of helping you get what you want because you're paying. How do you think about this current era? And what is something that you would like to see become maybe investable that isn't investable currently? So I think the fractionalization of assets, so this idea that any one consumer should be able to own any asset they want to own, is a sort of good idea, but it depends on the asset. So I'll break assets out into cash flowing assets versus non-cash flowing assets. The cash flowing asset, it might be, um, you know, people are financing SaaS revenues now, or people are financing, you know, stocks. You can buy a fractional share of a company. You know, I've always been better at financing cash flowing assets. I mean, if you think about the things that I've been talking with you about, you know, it's a Instagram, you know, creator who, ha- who makes an amount of money on ads. And I know that for however many followers they have, they can get a certain amount of impressions and you can sell an ad to those impressions. Like there's a cash flow there. And those are easy to finance because you come up with a point of view that is, I think that this thing's got a certain amount of risk. I require a certain amount of return for that risk. And so you can price the value of it. You know, and again, just really simply, like on a valuation, let's imagine I could own a rental property. I know that people need to live in a place. And if I only require a 10% rate of return, you know, then that means if it's making a dollar, I'll buy it for 10 bucks. Now, a restaurant, you know, is a little bit riskier than a rental property. It might be a good restaurant, might be a bad restaurant. The food might be good. They might go out of style. So I'd probably require a higher rate of return. So instead of buying it for $10 to get a 10% yield, I'd probably buy it for, you know, eight or $9 to get an 11% yield, you know, something higher than a 10. That's one thing. I don't think that's where most fractional assets are right now. They're mostly not uh, cash flowing assets. It's more things like crypto, art, fractional homeownership, cars, whatever. So I've always struggled with, and I call it cash flow lending versus LTV lending. LTV stands for loan to value. So often what you'll do is you'll say, okay, so I want to go buy an asset or I want to lend against art. And this piece of art transacted for $100 million. And if I lend $50 million against it, all I'm doing is assuming that the next sale won't happen for less than $50 million. Or if I end up having to seize the asset because somebody didn't pay me my interest, I can go sell it for more than $50 million because the last transaction happened at 100 The thing that I'd encourage listener, and, and there are people who do it, I, I, I don't know how to invest in art. I, I just, I don't have good taste. But the thing that I encourage you know, listeners to do is think about the fungibility of the asset they're financing. So if I'm margin lending against Facebook shares, all Facebook shares are the same. So they're fungible. If I'm lending against 1998 Honda Accords, all 1998 Honda Accords are kind of similar. If I'm lending against an N of one, there is not a lot of liquidity or fungibility or transaction volume where I can actually come with a point of view of, is this valuable because some one person said it's valuable? Or is it valuable because I have thousands of uniform transactions that really validate this? If I'm funding a Honus Wagner card, I, like, I don't know what the, um, what the value of a Honus Wagner card is. There's maybe a handful, dozens of transactions. You know, is dozens statistically significant? I don't know, but the confidence interval is probably pretty wide. And so I think you just have to remember, are you funding a fungible asset or is it bespoke? 
if it's bespoke, is there enough transaction volume such that you can build a confidence interval that's like within the realm of something that's investable? And if not, you're making an equity bet and you're hoping for the best. You know, the other challenge is if you're buying, you know, 49% of an asset versus 51%, you're only getting the appreciation. You're not getting the appreciation plus functionality. You know, if I own 51% of a home, I get the appreciation of the home plus I get to live in it. That's a good thing. If I only own 49% of it, I really want something else in exchange. You know, I want, now there's certain businesses, by the way, where you can own a minority and live in it. That, you know, so what you're hearing from me is, I think some are good, some are not good. People should be careful. In principle, yes, we should let people do what they want to do. But remember, are you buying a cash line asset or are you buying an asset with intrinsic value? If it's an asset with intrinsic value, is it fungible to a bunch of other assets? Do those other assets have a book of transaction volume where it's statistically significant? And it's not statistically significant. You're not making a, a safe bet. You're making a high risk bet, and that's okay. But just go into it knowing you're making an equity investment, hoping for the best in the future. Liquidity premiums are real, and they've always existed in public companies. You know, if you own an asset, but you know you can't get rid of it for three years, you pay less for that asset than an asset you could buy and get rid of tomorrow. And you know, the, the most bullish thing is getting to these IPOs of these assets that are illiquid, that, that are you know about to quote unquote IPO and become fractionalized or become more liquid. That could be a good argument. You know, get into an asset before it's liquid, and then once it's liquid, it'll be worth more. Season tickets for sports teams, by the way, were the same way. The first time that you know SeatGeek and all these other secondary sales markets for tickets became popular, it was easier to buy season tickets because you weren't committed to going to every game. You basically owned an option to go to every game, but then you could sell the other assets whenever you wanted to, and it made them more valuable because they came with liquidity. So it's not the first time that liquid assets have become liquid and become more valuable for it. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? Things aren't all good or all bad. And I think that um, venture capitalists are very short-term thinkers, even though they pretend like they're long-term thinkers. And here's what I mean by that. If I'm leading a seed round or a series A round, I need either I invest in something that's high consensus, such that I have confidence that the next round will get done, or I invest in something contrarian, and I need to spend the next 12 months convincing somebody else to fund my deal also. And so it's, it's very hard. You're either in the investment banking business because you're buying into an asset and then trying to sell that equity to somebody else later and explain to the market why you were right the whole time. Or maybe you're a multi-stage fund that can keep backing the business over and over and over again until the actual data and the outcome and the cash flows of the business make sense. But I think um, you know, venture capital, in a way, it's just become more of a business development and sales business than an investing business. And I hope it goes back to investing. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? When I first started investing, I got, got really lucky. I got to have this conversation with Howard Morgan, who was one of the founding partners of the first round. And, and the advice he gave was, when he made a mistake, one of the popular mistakes he would make is, you know, a founder would come and they'd pitch him, you know, I've got chocolate, I've got flour, I've got sugar, I've got eggs, I've got water. And, and Howard would get all excited because he's like, oh my God, we're making brownies. And he'd make the investment. Then he found out that everyone was making cake. And so making sure that, you know, you can take the same raw materials, but make sure you're aligned with the person you're about to back and make sure that um, it's very hard to make a minority investment and try to convince somebody that your vision is theirs. The, the other piece of advice that I got that I really loved was um, that company culture isn't built on the back of happy hours. It's actually built on the work you do. And I think a lot of companies get confused because they think having a beer keg or not having a beer keg or, you know, hanging out on the weekends or not or offsites, like all these things are what a culture is. You know, I was talking to somebody and it was like, oh, you know, I miss a lot of parts of our, our company culture because all the parts that I loved about, you know, the job was like, you know, getting drinks with my colleagues and all that. Like, you know, that stuff's gone. All you do is work now. I always thought like the work should be the culture. You know, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. That doesn't mean we're hard asses. That doesn't mean we don't like to have fun. But, but make sure that like the decisions you make day to day in your work, when we have an opportunity to just to screw a borrower, not screw a borrower because we can't, maybe we don't do it. You know, when we have an opportunity like during COVID, when some firms chose to close the rounds that they had committed to and some chose not to. You know, when we had a deal where the management company had to take certain actions that were hurtful to us, but were good for our portfolio company and good for our investors. 
is the decisions you make in your actual day-to-day work that create the culture, not the after-hour happy hours. I love that. We talk about a bit of this on the show, but how do you build a culture when everyone's remote and you don't have the happy hours? You don't have you know those opportunities for social. But I think in your world, if you're able to build a culture based off of you know the, the decisions you make at work and and really how you conduct your business, then that culture builds from there. It's important to know that the culture you're building is built around the work you do not the things that you do outside of the work. And, and it's important to feel like when you when you show up every day, like people always say work-life balance. And I've always struggled with that because I thought, gosh, does that mean that like when I go to work, I'm not living my life? Does that mean I'm only living my life a minority of the time? It's terrible. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe it's too too optimistic, but that's what we try to achieve. That's a great point. I mean, I was talking with Sam, the founder of Levels yesterday, and he was just like, yeah, like honestly, all I do is work, but I love it. Like that is my life and I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, my last question for you is what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, it's called Lords of Finance. It's about the formation of uh, the central bank in the U.S. and and a lot of the banks across uh, the U.K., France, Germany. And, you know, after World War I, Germany owed a bunch of money to France. France owed a bunch of money to the U.K. and the U.K. owed a bunch of money to the U.S. And Germany clearly couldn't pay its debts. So France went to the UK and said, look, we, we think we ought to be somewhat forgiving on the debts here because otherwise you're going to have to print a bunch of money and that'll be bad for their economy, but they, otherwise they can't pay us. And the UK said, you know, fine, we'll, we'll probably forgive the debts, but, um, but the US has to forgive our debts. And the US had just set up this whole system. They're like, you know what? No, like we, we need to get paid back. This is the first time we're building the culture. So Germany had to print a bunch of money and it created inflation, created instability, and we all know what happened next. And it shows you how powerful credit is. I mean, credit is such a big part of what makes the world go around. And it sounds kind of lame to run around making loans and all this stuff. But like the gravity of the decisions, I think, really matters. Now, that's obviously the most extreme I could ever think of. But it's a, it just shows how much credit matters. There's a reason certain religions don't let you lend money. From a personal perspective, Harry Potter, I mean, it's got to be, right? Harry Potter just shows what real friendship is. Just the, the, the relationships between Harry, Ron, and Hermione and the relationship with Professor Lupin, and the relationship with all these different characters. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, J.K. Rowling's commencement speech at Harvard, but if you haven't, you should watch it right after this. Many of the relationships in those books are the relationships I hope to have with people I love. Yeah, no, I mean, Harry Potter's, you're the second person that that mentioned Harry Potter as um, as what inspired them personally. And the first for Lords of Finance, so you're very original there. The worst title ever for a book, but it's still great. That's awesome. And, and those are some very, very good points that you made. Well, Ali, thank you so much for your time. This was super fun. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. This was a ton of fun. And you know, I look forward to hanging soon. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ali. You can follow him on Twitter at Ali B. Hamed. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 